Welcome to Indigenous Action, where we dig deep into critical issues impacting our communities throughout occupied North America. This is an autonomous, anti-colonial broadcast with unapologetic and claws-out analysis towards total liberation. So take your seat by this fire and may the bridges we burn together light our way. Part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network, channelzero.com. So, okay, yay! I'm super excited to be here with you too. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I've been really um, dying to have this conversation, especially with two radical badasses like you. And I want to um, give a shout out and a recommendation for our listeners to read. Um, the 17th edition of the Muchacha fanzine, which is what inspired um, the conversation of um, reclaiming indigenous feminism or, um, you know, adding to the conversation that's already been, um, that's already been uh, taking place for a long time now, which is abolition feminism. And we can thank our, um, you know, strong, Black um, women in history for starting those conversations in their homes and with each other um, as to, you know, what abolition feminism is. And I'm so excited to, again, contribute to that conversation and um, contribute more of an Indigenous lens and an Indigenous analysis to um, the topic of feminism in general. And What the zine does a really great job of doing is kind of pointing out all of the shortcomings and flaws in white liberal feminism or hashtag girl boss feminism. Um, That's basically just like perpetuating patriarchy, but just putting like, you know, a femme or like woman's face on it. So on it. Yeah, put a bow on it. I'm like, sorry, gals, but um, (laughs) when your feminism is just, you know, becoming the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, you're actually like not actually practicing feminism. And so we're going to go into a lot of reasons um, why white liberal feminism is just not working for us and how it erases non-white, non-cishet female identities within its um, practices and and so on and so forth. And then again, like coming from a stance of total abolition and um, indigenous liberation. Um, and I'll be one of your hosts today. My name is Bon. My pronouns are they, them. I'm Coco Pa. And currently I reside in so-called Flagstaff, which is a sacred um, place for 13 indigenous communities in this region. And I'm excited to be here again. And joining me as a host today is Amra. Yay, I'm so excited about this topic Um, and all the, the rage and anger that I feel towards fucked up heteropatriarchy. So I'm, I'm ready to get down with you all. Uh, my name is Amra, and my pronouns are she and her, or if you're using Spanish, ella. 
And I am awesome Mexican and European, and my father's family is from Yuma, Arizona, part of the historic and not currently federally recognized awesome people from that western part of the awesome Chilid. And I am excited to talk about this because I feel like it's really important for us to think about how is our view on feminism different? Why is it important? What does adding the word indigenous to it mean? <laughs> and it's not, you know, I love how you framed it, Bon. Like, it's not like, you know, trying to be like a white man. <laughs> that is not the goal. It's <laughs> not my goal anyway. No. So um, I'm really excited to talk about that and to think through this together. And I'm also excited for our guest today, Taloa. And hope you can introduce yourself. So-called Northern Arizona, Ako Antali, Chikasha Saya. My name is Taloa, and my pronouns are he, him, or they, them. I am residing in so-called Northern Arizona at the moment, and I am Chickasaw. I'm also a drag artist, beater, sewer, writer, etc. So I'm here to open up this discussion and also bring like an artistic perspective because art is extremely vital to revolutionary praxis and it can't just be all work and no play so thank you for the reminder (laughs) (laughs) yes we need to dance (laughs) So before we get started in our discussion today, we're going to do a new, newish thing for the podcast, which is we're going to um, give you some frontline news updates, sort of our uh, intro into what's happening around Indian country right now. And then we'll build our conversation kind of in relation to the current news. So one of the things that just happened this weekend was in the world of sports. Ew. There was the Super Bowl in Autumn Homelands, happened in so-called Phoenix, Akamla Autumn, part of the Jovid, and it was too awful <laughs> teams. <laughs> you can tell that I like different sports. I'll just say that. <laughs> but yeah, so so there's like, you know, the two teams that represent, you know, variations on the theme of racist, anti-Indigenous mascot, the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles. I always wonder if they're like equating us to animals, right? Like an eagle and an Indian together. <laughs> so in the dehumanization of the practice that is the racist Indigenous mascot. And the mainstream media reported that there was a presence of indigenous people protesting the representation outside of the the game, um, but they downplayed how many people were there. A lot of the mainstream coverage just said there was about 50 people and it wasn't really that significant for native people to be out there protesting the logo and the chants and the horrifically white supremacist ways that the fans act uh, dehumanizing our people. But when we looked at social media coverage of the event, videos from people who were there, it looked like there was probably two to three times that at least 100, 250 people, possibly more, who came out 
fought through traffic and dealt with the, you know, overpricing of parking and all that bullshit to go and protest uh, these racist representations of our peoples. And the, some of the signs were, you know, just reading like, nope, <laughs> like we, we just don't want this and, and cultural appropriation. Uh, there was a lot of really creative signage. Uh, you can send us on our socials uh, great, you know, images you have of signs or chants. We always love that. But the protesters kept asking for the teams to change, you know, these these racist representations and retire the name, especially the Chiefs and their Arrowhead logo and their tomahawk chop, which is like this racist, like minstrel kind of activity that they will do pretending to be Native folks in this horribly offensive way when the fans make a chopping hand gesture um, and pretend that they're doing chanting a war song. It's just incredibly awful and dehumanizing and offensive. So people were out there protesting that. And uh, we'll come back to this, this topic and how we all feel about it in a sec. But going on to the next news item. Yeah, next up, we just want to take a moment to honor the life that was lost out in so-called Atlanta in the Wilani Forest, Tortuguita or Tort. They were a trans indigenous, also immigrant, I believe, anarchist. And they were out there, they were a medic defending the forest and were tragically executed by the police. Ever since the event happened, there has been you know, the mainstream media has just been parroting the police narrative, which here we always know that the police narrative is a lie and that anything they say is to cover their own asses. So we just want to take a moment to honor their legacy and honor the fact that people aren't going to stop defending the land we here side with the land, we side with the ecosystems and the people who protect it. We refuse the police narrative and the mainstream media's narrative. And we're, we're not gonna forget you, Tort. Like we're still out here mm. fighting just as hard and the movement is only growing now. Yes, yes, empower Tort, mm -hmm. we love you. And yeah. Um, yeah, I'm excited to share a little, um, when we get back into that conversation, I actually got to spend some time out in so-called Atlanta um, a week or two ago here. So that'll be, um, you know, some frontline um, takes on on what's going on post Tort's murder on that. Um, and even more news, Nathan chasing horse. Dun, dun, dun. Disgusting. Yucky. Boo. But we all knew it. We all knew it. And I cannot right, believe right. it took this long. Seriously. For someone to groom five wives from childhood into being Gross. this man's husband. How did it take this long? I just, I, I don't understand. But story is yeah. that 46-year-old pedophile Nathan Chasing Horse 
Um, so for those who don't know, he's like most well known for his role in Dances with Wolves. He was the, um, you know, racist stereotype of a medicine man. He was taken into um, custody in Las Vegas. And of course, he lived in Las Vegas. Um, and that happened on January 31st. And he was taken in on two counts of sexual exploitation of children and one count of possession of child pornography. And trigger warning, the rest of well, what we've already been talking about and the rest of what we're talking about is um, going to have to do with rape, um, sexual abuse, and other um, absolute injustices that we, um, you know, kind of operate within our everyday lives um, as like queer people, as femmes, as indigenous people, etc. So um, apologies for not having given a content warning at the beginning of this show. I think that sometimes just signifies that we're so used to talking about things like this in our, you know, in our kitchens, um, you know, with each other, you know, through social media, et cetera. Um, so apologies for that, but the rest of um, this conversation will be pretty heavy and deep around those topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, <clears throat> so said child pornography in which he um, was taken into custody for on just one count um, was uh, pornography of his own making. He was um, reported to be raping a girl um, said to be between the ages of 11 and 13. Disgusting. That's horrifying. And, you know, unfortunately, this is not something that feels very shocking. You know, when we think of especially the MMIW G2ST movement mm-hmm. and uh, like how that relates to these conversations and the normalization of um, pedophilia. And yeah, one of the ways in which, you know, Nathan chasing horse like was able to get away with uh, these abuses for so long um, has a lot to do with the rape culture that we live in Mm -hmm. and how um, that's directly related to the, um, you know, the disappearance and murder of indigenous women. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, Nathan Chasing Horse led a cult called The Circle. And he actually, you know, throughout the span of, his leader, his initiation and, and leadership of this cult, he kept a detailed journal, which <sighs> if you're as sick as me, you can't wait to see like what the fuck was going on and who the people are accountable for letting this happen for so fucking long. Cause sure. Name the are. enablers, name the enablers. Yes. enablers. Get the enablers yeah. too, please. Exactly. Like, please, honey. There was like 24 supporters for Nathan Chasing Horse in the courtroom and more outside uh, when his trial took place. Um, And they were holding signs that uh, translated to justice for Chasing Horse. 
Ugh. And like he's some kind of victim. Yeah. So, it's right? so disgusting. He's a victim of the state. He's a victim of the state that allowed him to perpetuate these acts of terror Ugh. in the community for so long. And as of now, there have been at least six identified victims. One who was 13 when the grooming began. And then there was another uh, victim who said that she was offered as a gift to him when she was 15 years old. It's like trafficked by her own parents. Yeah. This is disgusting. Yes. Yes. So not only is he facing charges here in, um, you know, the so-called United States, specifically so-called Nevada, he's also being charged in uh, BC, uh, so-called British Columbia and Canada. And that's for an alleged sexual assault that occurred in 2018. So here's, you know, here's maybe even where we can start the conversation about the need for... Mm -hmm you know, indigenous abolition feminism, because here's, you know, a loophole and in, in the story or not in the story, but in the, you know, justice and liberation that we um, need to be like demanding and current takes and approaches and praxis on feminism are not fucking doing it. And which is that, um, so there's a law in Nevada that, and I don't understand it. Like I didn't like do re- a ton of research into it, but it's something like in Nevada, if you if you're set a bail, you only have to pay fifteen percent of it. So he was um, his bail was set to three hundred thousand, which means he would only have to pay forty five thousand to um, make the bail. And so that doesn't make any sense for one. And two, it just like shows so much the need for like just the total abolition of, you know, the police, the courts, judges, Mm -hmm. the whole system is like flawed and skewed towards the continued genocide of indigenous people, even when it's perpetuated by an indigenous person. Mm -hmm. Um, we know that there's like native bootlickers out there. They're in our communities. They're, you know, totally assimilated to their own, you know, our own like oppression and, and, you know, and, you know, some people could say that's like part of the survival, but the point I want to make here is that while in larger, like white liberal feminist conversations, like their approach might be that, well, we have to trust in these systems of democracy because they're like righteous, they're true, they're just blah, blah, blah. I legit had someone, you know, here in town, white liberal feminist, um, be upset with me for outing a sexual abuser um, during a presentation I was giving. And in the aftermath, she tried to identify like where I worked and then I ran into her on the street and I was like, you got a problem? Like I confronted her because I couldn't believe that someone would, you know, be trying to protect a sexual predator in our community. 
And her response was basically that I should trust the like judicial systems that are in place to like do like our bidding for us. Yeah. So that's just like, you know, my first and maybe one of my largest critiques of white liberal feminism is that they're like, while they're so busy, like, you know, climbing these corporate ladders and, um, you know, perpetuating capitalism and exploitation of more vulnerable people, like, they're totally, like, ignoring how, like, these systems, like, specifically impact, like, Black Indigenous people, specifically Black and Indigenous queer people, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, you know, within this Nathan chasing horse conversation, it wouldn't, it doesn't surprise me that there's supporters there in the courtroom and that, you know, a lot of the media, like, that's out there about this issue comes from the narratives of the police and, you know, like kind of dehumanize, like in in the process, like dehumanizing the victims, um, Mm -hmm. you know, by, by saying the crimes that he committed were like, you know, this like two counts, like this two count of this and one count of this. And like, for how long are we going to like rely on, you know, these laws, um, to like scare people into not raping other people. It doesn't like make any sense that we like within, you know, indigenous abolition communities um, and in critique of white liberal feminism that we would continue to like go to the law, recruit police, et cetera, or, you know, that the, like defeating of uh, rape culture like the fact that we even have to like hear about this or that there's any form of like justice so-called justice coming from this like only because he was arrested by the state right like there was nothing going on like within the like outside communities because like he was like being protected and like so that's part of it is like we have to be able to even like detach ourselves from this because obviously it's it's great that people want to pretend that there's some people out there who can always protect us but just like what bond was saying where like that woman came up to you in town like it it reminded me of something from the fanzine where they brought up that systematically criminalized survivors are not recognized as victims by the state. Right. So, and like, I just think about like, that woman had no idea about the harassment you were already receiving from the state, like, because she had no semblance of like what it means to like live in this kind of, society where 
Like, of course, she thinks that because she's exactly the person that they're working to protect. And with the chasing horse stuff, it really also reminds me of the whole like free Leonard Peltier movement Mm -hmm. and like the AIM stuff where people want to like rally around this like like indigenous man who's like doing all this stuff and is like bringing native representation but like we're completely ignoring the woman who was murdered in this story and like the indigenous activist who knew these men and these men had a hand in her murder and now all of these like non like native nonprofits and everything they post like their little like oh like free leonard peltier graphics and all that while never addressing where it's all coming from it's all it's individ it's on an individual level yeah it's also like it's so disturbing because for years there have been people calling out chasing horse like there were are folks within indian country who've been trying to alert other people to his predatory behavior for years and victims who were speaking out and people trying to warn other communities, like, don't let this guy into your community. He'd been banished from some communities, but he just kept moving around to new places and using the the sort of, you know, the longing and desperation that a lot of Native people have for our culture, for our traditions, for our spirituality as like a weapon to then rape and abuse you know, taking advantage of people needing uh, to connect with spirituality, needing to connect with medicine and using that to lure in more victims. And so it's, it's difficult because like right now, then some of those people are feeling vindicated that he's finally got arrested by the state. And therefore the state now is saying, yes, they were right. <laughs> he's a predator and we caught him in the act and, and the state is agreeing with some of this evidence but then it's also reproducing this narrative where we don't believe our own people. We don't believe our own victims. We only believe the cops, you know? And, and so for fo- some folks who are like, Oh, now they're recognizing that he is this problem that people have been saying he always is just reinforces kind of the silencing of those, those victims and those witnesses who saw what was going on, saw him being shady and have been trying to call it out for years so it's frustrating, you know, because now it's going to be framed as if there's some kind of justice that the state is providing that, that Native people have failed, that Indian countries failed to provide, right? And so I think that that's the problem with, like, this idea of, you know, this carceral kind of feminism that happens. We're trying to say the state and the cops are going to provide justice for this situation um, because we can't get our shit together to do it ourselves instead of a moment of reflecting on like, well, as abolitionists, what are the different ways that we can actually do that ourselves? You know, what are the different ways that we can actually create safety, create justice and challenge the rape culture that's in ceremony circles, that's in the way that heteropatriarchy and creepy dudes have occupied ceremony and use it to take advantage of other people, you know? And, and so like, I think that there's, like a spectrum of, you know, 
the, you know, it's not just like rape and grooming and trafficking and all the things that he was accused of sit at like in isolation from all these other practices of patriarchy and homophobia and transphobia that have embedded themselves in the like kind of colonial occupation of our ceremony ways, you know, because a lot of our peoples had traditions that, you know, we've been forced to lose about what gender, what sexuality means, what are the roles and the medicine that queer people, two-spirit people carry, you know, what is the medicine that women carry? And um, that gets kind of occupied by a lot of these men taking advantage of the loss of culture that's come from cultural genocide to then, you know, police the way women dress at ceremony, you know, to tell two spirits people they're not welcome in ceremonies or they're not allowed to dress how they need to dress or be who they need to be or represent themselves in the way that creator made them. Right. And carry the medicine that they are meant to have, you know, and then carry the role that they are supposed to have in our communities. And so I see it as a continuum. Like, you know, there's, there's, a lot of these predatorial men out there taking advantage of ceremony, calling themselves medicine people and, you know, perpetuating a lot of sexism and homophobia and transphobia through that. And that's not our tradition, right? That's not our way, you know, that doesn't belong in our ceremony spaces, but for a lot of people, especially like urban people who are trying to reconnect, I've noticed that, you know, that seems to be so prevalent, like at least on the res, there's different options, right? <laughs> you know, you might know, you know, a co- you might be able to find a, a medicine circle, you know, medicine people who are not reproducing some of this stuff. But for a lot of folks that are, you know, growing up outside of their territories, um, unfortunately, like those predators become the gatekeepers to ceremony and to medicine, and that just perpetuates their ability to abuse. So it's like, it, you know, to me, it's like a fundamental abolitionist problem. Like, how do we deal with that issue in a way that doesn't reinforce the power of the state, you know, because we can't handle our own shit? Absolutely. And I know in a lot of communities, that's exactly what we are doing. I know, you know, living here in um, a border town to, you know, um, Dineta and like seeing different levels of, you know, intervention, like, uh, I don't, it's hard to, well, here, let me explain it. So, so there's a group um, that I used to be part of called MMDR, which was missing and murdered Dinette relatives. And basically like what I learned from uh, being part of that group is that almost every um, person that's been found um, after, you know, missing missing persons report was found by people in that community because they mm-hmm. were so they were totally left behind and and you know the like the police um, and detective and like course priorities, I guess if you will, and. And while, like, a lot of these families, um, you know, initially went to, like, the police, went to, the re- like, the reporting and, you know, did the whole kind of, like, 
extractive process of like this missing person's life so that it could like maybe be um you know cared about by the system and then it wasn't <clears throat> turning like their loved one and their their um dear relative into another like statistic and a pile of shit that they don't care about at all these these families mobilized themselves in their community to search every corner of anywhere that they thought they could find um, their their relative. And most of the cases, there like was little like police or court, you know, um, involvement into the like discovery of these of these folks and. And so here, here we are at this kind of like interesting, like juncture of like within you know the missing and murdered Indigenous um, women, two spirit girl, and trans folks um, movement is a lot of people calling for more funding for right. police forces too. Yeah, that it's a problem that will be solved with more police. Right. Exactly. Or giving up sovereignty to let state police and other local police agencies onto your sovereign territory, and that's going to somehow solve it. Or bringing in more federal government officials, that's going to solve the problem. Right. It's not. It's what feeds the problem. Yeah. (laughs) It's letting go more of your sovereignty is somehow going to protect your people. Like, that doesn't make any sense. No, and it, it, it doesn't make any sense. And so, like, you know, like, we have these communities these self-organized communities like getting shit done but then still having that belief of like we need to still invest in this system Mm -hmm. like so we have this kind of like contradiction sometimes within our movements and within our struggles because you know, because we're assimilated to white supremacy. We're assimilated to our own genocide. And so, like, I think in navigating, like, like these worlds and, like, these approaches to, you know, indigenous abolition feminism as something to just really, like, keep in mind, like, where our communities are at. And even though, like, um, they might not realize they are literally practicing indigenous abolition feminism, like on mm-hmm. the ground by organizing these, you know, beautiful moments of like community collectiveness that they may be afraid to like espouse that, you know, indigenous abolition, like label um, because as we know in the history of like colonial, colonial, a genocide of like our folks like anyone who like in the boarding schools and you know there's like a whole history and you can mm-hmm. listen to some of our other shows about why um you know folks might be afraid to be that symbolic or to take on like the role of an abolitionist if that makes sense yeah i mean i think whether people take on like the name, like say I'm an indigenous abolitionist feminist or not, like doing the work is what's important, right? 
like that folks came together in, in both of these examples, you know, folks came together to find their missing loved one when, you know, the cops failed. Folks came together to, you know, early on call out this guy and warn other communities and banish him from communities and, you know, try to protect people. Folks, you know, did the work. Um, and the problem is the, you know, the people who didn't listen, right? It's, it's you know, there was, there were people there. Like we can't say that, that you know, it's a failure, you know, in many ways, it's a success, you know, where people have been building on holding these folks accountable within community um, for a long time. So I think to me, it's yeah. like, if you're doing the work, you're defending, you know, our spiritual ways, you're calling out cis-heteropatriarchy in ceremony spaces, you're creating spaces that are safe, you're trying to, you know, create accountability, create justice, find people, then that's the work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And to clarify too, like, I think it's important that when like we talk about like any kind of like anarchist or abolitionist practice that like commitment and militancy towards that, like the theory behind the practice is really important and so, like, that's why, like, I think it's so necessary to, you know, be having these conversations outside of, like, our our circles so that, mm-hmm. like, for example, like, we don't keep, like, working with cops in our communities. We don't keep, like, relying on, like, these systems um, and, you know, the puppet, the puppet governments that are, you know committing like fraud against and within our own you know so-called nations it seems like we need our own structure and communities to like be connecting and because like we almost need a structure to counter this like structural problem it feels like sometimes maybe like an individual spaces or individual groups there's a lot of focus on like directly like this is like a local abuser like in the community and so like only like the locals know about it and it's still very much like a focus on like interpersonal issues Mm -hmm. rather than structural issues so it's like even though you could have maybe like an abolitionist group doing that there's still it's it needs to be spread far and wide because that's part of the harm reduction is that like the more people know about this, the less this person can go there and cause harm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what those individual communities decide to do if those individuals approach their community is up to them. But it still just seems like it, and it's hard because like in capitalism, we're taught to be like hyper individualistic. It's hard to move like the, our way of thinking away from just like interpersonal conflict and towards these like bigger connections. I think about how like basically in my culture and probably in a lot of other cultures, we basically say that like talking shit is sacred. 
because because if like if we're sitting around talking to each other then people know people are informed and that like part of like how the state silences us is by trying to like stamp out those like oral networks which starts like with things like our language but also just like shutting down and endlessly harassing and infiltrating more radical movements. Yeah, and it's not just like, like the individualism isn't just like at like, oh, like from a perspective of like sexual violence, but also literally everything that we're dealing with. Because that's like the cornerstone of white feminism is that like you yourself can be a feminist and that's feminism because like i don't know you have like a feminist personality i don't even know (laughs) (laughs) what the fuck is it even right (laughs) so yeah and i think also sorry go ahead i was just gonna say i i always interpreted indigenous feminism as as being about us you know as about our community um as about our people you know and so I think to me, that's always the difference. It's not, it's not yeah. an individual like me, I'm a feminist, you know, but <laughs> I'm, I'm for the liberation of our people. I'm for the liberation of our, our land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think also like a lot of the like hyper individualistic, like white feminism leads a lot of people to like actually really like far right, like transphobic beliefs as well. Because, Mm -hmm. like, when I think of white feminism, I also think of, like, TERFs. So, if we want to get into that. Let's let's break down that word for some folks who haven't heard it. Good call. A trans-exclusionary radical feminist, which a lot of people over time have kind of just been, like, it's a word that has been used kind of just, I feel like, out of convenience, maybe, because, like, mm. we know that these people aren't feminists deep down. Like, in fact, they're doing everything they can to, like, reinforce patriarchy, right? Because, like, mm-hmm. the whole thing is about, like, bioessentialism. And, like, a cornerstone of white supremacy is bioessentialism. And, mm-hmm. yes, I kind of like to use that word because it's a lot it gets a lot more to the point of like what their ideology is around Mm -hmm. and it also like gets to the point that it's a highly like racist ideology Mm -hmm. and like Mm bioessentialism historically comes from like white supremacist racist ideas that like humans only come in two rigid sexes which biologically predetermines your personality your capacity to do harm Mm -hmm. gender roles literally everything like that so if it by rejecting bioessentialism we're also rejecting white supremacy we're rejecting like everything it's like eugenics right eugenics exactly yeah Yeah. like saying because of your your racially you know your race is a biological idea and therefore you're inferior to white people which we know is biologically not true right there's no biological things as race and even gender 
a lot of scientists who really study biology are are skeptical that it's even a biological thing, <laughs> you know. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I love that term. Thank you for offering that. that yeah, of course. It makes allows me to see like the connection between racism and and sexism a lot, and like and transphobia and queerphobia like a lot more clearly. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like through it's almost like through the objectification of like our just like visible bodies, like that can then determine like who and what we are. When that's actually like who and what we are is like such a spiritual mm-hmm. like experience that's directly directly related to every single thing around us, like the skies, the land, the waters, each other. Um, and so, yeah, it's just such a, like, within the constructs of, like, you know, race and gender, like, it just feels, like, just even more dehumanizing to be, like, and, and, you know, in some ways, I will say, like, as I was, like, coming out and, like, like, seeing beyond the binary, I guess, if you will, a lot of those, like, like terms within like queer communities like really helped me kind of like come to like how I understand or about myself um but not necessarily like determining like what I am exactly and so yeah I think words are super powerful but also feelings and experiences are you know connected to like spirit and Mm -hmm. and so we have to make sure that we're not like getting caught up in this like jumbo of like you know constructed identities and and things like that. I know it can be like super affirming um, for folks too. Yeah, but like I like the point that you were bringing up though um, about how that ideology, that kind of you know colonial white supremacist like ideology of bioessentialism, like how pervasive that is that people have been assimilated forcibly to that idea and then internalize it and then re like regurgitate it as if it's somehow part of our indigenous culture or our way of seeing the world. Um, And I think a lot of like, you know, there are sort of these, even I would say like kind of mainstreamy ways of thinking about feminism or even indigenous feminism that definitely do that, you know, like definitely reinforce a very colonial idea of what feminism is. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, that's super true. Like even within like, yeah, the MMIW G2ST movement, like I know people who are like, almost seemingly on purpose still calling it MMIW, which is missing and murdered indigenous women instead of like choosing, you know, um, like relatives or people or, you know, something that just includes like the potential for that to happen to any of us. Mm -hmm. Um, And also like the reality, right. That queer and trans and two spirit people are targeted. Mm-hmm. yeah it, it leads right back to like the bioessentialism like 
oh, you'll only be targeted for sexual violence if you have like these certain traits, which it's harmful to people of all genders. And that mm-hmm. definitely like feeds into like the like white feminist idea of like, oh, like we're just like against men or like we just. I don't, you know, like hating men as a like cornerstone for your feminism when like they turn right back around and like reproduce the exact same power structures that they claim to be against. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and it's it's just reproducing like the ways that you know, cis hat men hate women. Right? <laughs> it's not actually challenging like you know the construction of like oppression, gender-based oppression and sexual violence. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, some of the, like, thinking of just, like, the things that reinforce, um, you know, like, I guess, like, the gender binary and, um, you know, colonial, like, understandings of gender is absolutely, like, the police and court systems. Um, Mm -hmm. When we look at you know, um, research, which I think like most data is all like very extractive to begin with, but just looking at, um, you know, like the movement in terms of like numbers, like I don't even want to know how many like people were just like shoved into like the category of being a man or the category of being a woman when their body was found, (laughs) you know, like, we don't know, like those, those are queer relatives that just got shoved into like this, um, you know, one of the, the biggest purveyors of like the continual like oppression of who we are and like the continual genocide of who we are. And like, I think that just like addresses another like need which is which is happening in our communities for us to like develop our own like ways of um, accounting for everyone who's been stolen from us with our own mm-hmm. like ways of um, recording and and you know things like that and, and working outside of the systems that are in place as of now and also like recognizing like that this you know, the police state is, you know, fundamentally has this colonial history of genocide against our people of coming, um, coming out of, you know, slavery, chattel slavery, and, you know, created as a force to capture fugitive um, black people who are trying to escape to liberation, you know? And so I think like, it's just such a contradiction to me to go to the, the police or to the state for safety from sexual violence when cops so many times are the perpetrators of domestic violence and sexual violence, like, like going back to current events, like the news coverage coming out of the UK about they found out that these cops had been raping people for years, you know, and there's two cops that now they're like arresting and trying to do something with, but it started this whole conversation of in that country of people coming out and being like, Oh yeah, like the cops are more scary. Like this, the cops are the rapists. Like this is something everybody's know (laughs) and no one's going to go to them, you know, for safety. 
And so it's, you know, to me, that's the contradiction. Like, of course, they're going to fail in finding relatives. Of course, they're going to fail in creating safety and protecting vulnerable people, especially vulnerable people like folks in the sex industry or or folks who are, you know, unhoused, um, you know, people who are repeatedly the subjects of police violence. I would even say that the state is the greatest purveyor of sexual violence. Like sexual violence is a, like it is an essential tool to the state to enforce patriarchy. And like the, I think the more it's thought about as something that really can't be like separated from like incarceration and the state and things like that, the more Mm -hmm. we'll be moving towards like, an abolitionist perspective as long as we know like these cops are way more likely to rape than to bring a rapist to justice and i don't know what happens because i see this like getting said all the time but Mm -hmm. then time and time again it always returns back to this person finally got arrested or like, what can we do to put this person in jail? Or I, where does it go wrong, I guess, is my question. Like, we start with this belief, and then we end up completely somewhere else. Yeah. I think that that's, like, those are the hard questions, like, for transformative justice work. Like, I don't know. I've been in a part of a lot of different transformative justice and could community accountability processes and when someone's like at that level of violence you know we're not just dealing with them activists who's like creating havoc in a community but someone who is like you know raping and harming and threatening to shoot someone or threatening to blow someone up or you know these some of the situations that I've observed we we end up being at a loss of like what do we do like because we don't have the tight knit communities that we used to have where banishment really was a punishment equal to death, you know, social death, just getting kicked out of a community almost doesn't matter anymore because then they just go prey on another community. So, I mean, going back to like what you were saying to about needing to have the infrastructure, needing to have the networks, you know, across communities so that we've got some type of structure so people can't just bounce around. Um, is important, but also where I see it sort of get into gray areas is then, you know, like talking to folks about like these hard like situations. There's also this like gut reaction to some folks that, okay, well, this is, this is a situation where we need like hood justice. We're just going to go beat that person up or we're just going to go use violence to shut down violence. And then it's just, you know, that doesn't solve the problem either, though. That just kind of reproduces, like, oh, some form of patriarchal violence, like getting all your cousins to go beat them up is, is going to be the solution. And that that's not either. You know, that just reinforces heteropatriarchy. And so I think it's like this, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough question. Like, what do we do with someone who is, is a rapist, is trying to murder people, you know? Like, what can we draw on to, to protect ourselves from that? I mean, I remember hearing um, a relative 
chosen relative talk about like her dad um, going up to the family pedophile shotgun to his head and didn't pull the trigger. And an antithesis to what you had just said, that broke my heart. That right. broke my heart that he couldn't, he couldn't do it. And I saw no reason for that man to see the light of another day ever again. I really didn't. And to what point, like, like, I think, you know, and, and like, in support of what you're saying of like, if someone's like to that point, like, what are you supposed to do? without relying on a carceral system or he gets a prison sentence. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if that that's not necessarily what I'm saying. Like that I'm like, yeah. is my, the foundation of like my, you know, thoughts on it or anything like that. But like, yeah, just in that moment, I was just like, man. And, 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 and then thinking of like, you know, almost every person that I know has been abused by somebody. And in that really, like, most vile, violent way. And so many of those people, like Nathan Chasinghorse, are regarded as, you know, these protectors in the community, people who would never do anything like that you know, so on and so forth. Like, what do we, I mean, yeah, well, like, what are we supposed to do? And like, yeah, it's just such a a conversation that seems like it has like so many different approaches to it. I would ask the question, is like the violence of self-defense the same as state violence right like yeah definitely not like if someone like fights back against their abuser that is not like something that we would consider like oh like they abuse that person back like i think like emphasis on like the right to self-defense but also the fact that like it is up to those individual communities because I like I kind of like lean towards the side of well we got to do what we got to do to protect children and to protect the people like who are being targeted by this person and yeah I don't it's really hard because there's also like a lot of emotions like that crop up when like those kinds of conversations come up. And I think it's also good to like welcome those emotions instead of trying to push them away or like take like a logical approach to the problem. I think it needs a little bit of both where like, Mainly, we're centering, like, the voices, the feelings, and the needs of the victims, which, where we're at right now, 
we're not even like in a place where victims can like safely name their abuser and know that like they can be safe and that they can say that person's name without someone trying to figure out where they work or something like that. So maybe, maybe like moving the conversation from like, what do we do with them? And more like opening the discussion around what accountability would look like for the victims. Which, if the victims are children, that's another question. So, I'm just if you if you got to go if you got to go beat up a rapist, you got to go beat him up. I, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean. But you're yeah, absolutely I, right. Like no, I feel you. Like I mean, in a pers- yeah, in a personal way, like I, like I'm with you 100. percent Like I'm like, all right, kick his ass, you know. But like you know, to whatever we have to do to make people safe in the moment. But then I just think structurally, though, like right, like, exactly, in a structurally, kind of preventative sense. Like, how do we just get them to stop? Right? Oh yeah. How do we just get them to stop? <laughs> like right, 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 right. Know? Which yeah killing us totally which is like the like antithesis of like what would be you know again referring to like a white liberal approach of like (laughs) take karate classes or get pepper spray or like Mm -hmm. you know yeah don't blame the victim like yeah (laughs) don't put your drink on like the bar go buy a gun Go buy a gun. Like, okay. I am. Right. <laughs> I mean, I am a gun owner and I, oh, I if that's what you want to do, but like, I think it's, it's reckless to tell people to do that. Well, yeah. Without being like, there's a lot of like work that goes into doing something like that. And like, there's practice. It's also like, it can, like put you up for like being harassed by the state Mm -hmm. like if they know that you own a gun so yeah yeah. not to mention like if we're talking about cops as rapists that's not yeah cops cops are are rapists and murderers i mean yeah but it's it's like i think that gets to like some of the the conversations about like you know, I, I don't really like the reformist language of it, but where folks have been demanding to like defund or, you know, disband, yeah. like, yeah. you know, the, at least they're coming from a framework of like, let's disempower their power to kill us. <laughs> you know, let's take it away. Let's take it back, you know, and try to think about that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like how we saw with like, it's been in the aftermath of like the slaying of tort, like it just kinda almost feels like there's no like it, which all this all actually every part of this conversation too, I just want to point out, has like huge foundations in capitalism. I mean, this like training facility is like a ninety million dollar project backed by 
tons of corporations, um, which will generate tons of money into the area because they'll ship people probably from not just only the so-called U.S., but everywhere to, like, Yeah, it'll be, like, School of the Americas for pigs, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be the largest pig pen in the forest. (laughs) You know, and so it's, like... Like, at what point, like, where do we, like, how do we, like, negotiate, like, how do we negotiate, like, that, like, you know, under this current administration with the current occupant of the White House, like, you know, granting the most, like, funding to the militarization of the police and the continued murder of, like, Black and Indigenous people uh, at the hands of these like now like really advanced like you know police operations and like it's just like I know earlier we were kind of like critiquing the question of like well what do we do now or what do we do with them you know but it is like on you know an organizational as like a like again like as someone committed to indigenous abolition feminism, like it's a conversation that we really need to like look at and, you know, start really like practicing like what we can do on, on the ground. And, and for me, that's creating like communities of care, which were the circumstances in which, um, you know, Tort was murdered out there when I went and, and visited. Um, so, called Atlanta at the People's Park in Wilani Forest. Um, they had coordinated like mutual aid efforts. They had coordinated medic services. They had coordinated meals, coordinated groceries. I mean, it was like a beautiful display of an alternative to, you know, living in this colonial capitalistic world. And we know that the creation of that and the defense of that is what got Tort murdered. And so, you know, and, and obviously in connection to like protecting like people, the environment there, the land there, uh, et cetera, from, you know, colonial extraction and, and desecration. I mean, it's such like this, I mean, it's like, almost like you couldn't come up with a more like visceral metaphor, right? Like you've got sacred Muscogee and Cherokee land, a forest next to low income black community in like the town where Martin Luther King preached and had his church. (laughs) Like you've got, you know, these black and indigenous relations with this sacred forest that are so important. You know, and 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 then here comes all these cops trying to build like a military fortress to take the forest away from the black people and the Muscogee people and the Cherokee people and put up like a military base in which to terrorize that community, terrorize that black community. Like it's so fucking obvious <laughs> that this is wrong. Like you can't come up with like like you're like, what? <laughs> you know, like I also gonna- think about how like those trees are old growth forest and so like that means like those are like those are like the mother trees 
of like the whole like southeastern ecosystem like it's not like it's not even like just a forest like it is it is and like right there with like the mississippi river like that is like the mouth of life like in the southeast like if we keep like part of our indigenous feminism is mainly like land and water defense because Mm. if we have like if we aren't defending the land and the water that's like the most basic thing that we have to do to protect ourselves from colonial extraction because there won't be any harm reduction if we have nothing to drink right like i also think of like the railway explosion Uh, mm -hmm. disaster happening in so-called ohio right now mm-hmm. right in and, Appalachia. Mm-hmm, like the whole like mm-hmm. first of all that it could have been prevented right that since last year and probably earlier i just haven't found sources from earlier you, railroad union workers have been saying that this type of accident could can and will happen if they don't make a change and then like you were saying Mm -hmm. the current occupiers of the white house did everything in their power oh by the way in including um our favorite girl bosses in congress they also (laughs) voted to oh yeah yeah they voted to um strike down the strike and now we're here on the Mm -hmm. cusp of an ecological disaster that we really can't even begin to know the consequences. Like, it is... I almost don't I mean, know what to it say. Wasn't, yeah, so obvious that they're just trying to kill us, right? And trying to kill the land at the same time. And the you fact know, that and- it was a low-income town. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's not even just that town. It's the whole state. And the whole, like, Ohio River Basin, the water has been poisoned, the air has been poisoned, the land has been poisoned. And, like, it's so much to where I wouldn't be surprised if, like, within the next few months we even, like, have consequences, like, in the Southwest. Just because of, like, the way the weather works. And then... Mm -hmm. You know, that eventually, like, that goes to the ocean and, like, birds eat fish and, like, the animals eat the plant, the poison plants. And, like, it's poisoning not only our wildlife, like, our food sources, our water sources. My cat broke into the room. (laughs) But... Mm-hmm. I'm yeah, sure that is in agreement, though. <laughs> oh, no, she is. Most definitely animal. is. Yeah. There and there's been a, almost a complete media blackout in terms of like the actual consequences, because everything that I've seen has just been like, oh, like there was an explosion, there was a chemical explosion, and like the town had to evacuate, and like that's it. But just from some environmentalists and some chemists that I've seen, they're like, y'all, this is bad. And so 
all of these like needs to defend the land and water just like keep popping up and keep popping up because like we have to understand that they are not gonna stop like they they'll extract every last i don't even know what and they'll stomp everyone else like under their boot and so besides awareness like how are we going to actually like put ourselves out there and be physically there for those land defense movements because we often see like women and like trans native folks are usually the ones like out there on the front lines yeah at land defense events like getting harassed and brutalized by the police like why do we have to be the ones not to mention like we're not enough we Mm -hmm. need other people to help us Mm -hmm. like and also to take over sometimes because (laughs) it shouldn't shouldn't, literally like they want to like oh like go talk about like they're so like connected and like they go to ceremony and all this but like they haven't said a word about sacred sites being destroyed as they speak and it's again like going back to the, like that hyper individualistic like oh i'm going to like make a living as like a native influencer and like um, just like kind of talk about this stuff but not really do anything about it because yeah. like settlers love it when i like make a speech on instagram live or whatever but exactly what we're about which is returning the land to who knows how to take care of it they don't like they don't like that so much because they settlers have this entitlement to the land and the animals around them and i think that like entitlement and there also like needs to be i think education around how capitalism has like disconnected us mentally from the land and how a lot of people don't understand that like the earth gives us everything that we need to live like we don't need anything extra like like we have all of these gifts and yet we like pour concrete on top of it i think like like the ingratitude of it is just mm -hmm. and the thing is is like we can like we as indigenous people can really like feel it on a like a deep down level like because a lot of us like within our recent family histories remember distinctly being disconnected from the land and how much that hurt and how much like fallout it causes in families and communities for like those things to no longer be available or for the land to be poisoned to where they can't even go back there anymore. I, I literally, I can't imagine the grief. I think something that I, that I feel like should also be discussed is like the grief that comes with all of this. Like, yes, like we're fighting and we're angry, like 99% of the time, but sometimes Like, where does all that pain go? Like, I think that's something that also, like, needs to be, like, shared amongst us. I think, 
due to like colonialism and just like people being disconnected from communities and also like specific colonial traumas like with boarding schools and with being adopted out and things like that people there's like a this avoidance of like shame or different emotions that come with it which i think again is also like very capitalistic um like when i think about like the practice of psychiatry and how like okay like you're depressed so here's these pills well people are depressed because they've been disconnected from their culture and on an even more obvious level because they don't even have access to clean water or they live in a food desert or like i don't know there's just there's a lot there's a lot here in terms of like it's not a disorder to be upset that yeah. the land is being poisoned it's not a, it's not a disorder to like be angry about it or to want these things to end so yeah obviously i i think it, it keeps the fire going even more when people can like talk about these really heavy emotions and then feel that they are held and that like you know even though we do go through this really hard stuff we still have this fighting spirit like we're we're not gonna give up because it's there is no choice but to end this yeah i think that's such a great great point especially in relation to you know like the protest against native american or just native um mascots like I don't think people understand the pain that we experience and then therefore don't understand why something that seems so, you know, like nonviolent would hurt so bad, would hurt us so bad. And like when, you know, like they don't understand like the symbol of like, the power of like our symbolism like and when that's made a mockery of and made money off of and then leads to you know our own people fucking selling out so they can do a dance for ESPN there's people behind those you know charades that are like trying to protect what we have left and, and it's so, not like, yeah, it's not distant history, right? Like, so no. there are so many folks that I know, like, I mean, in my own community where my own family, where we still talk about ancestors who survived the massacres, you know? Like, there are, there's things that people carry that are still very close, you know? It's not a long time ago, okay. you know? It's not out of living memory. And because those stories have been passed to us by a grandparent who heard it from their parent or their grandparent, you know, it's not, it's not that long ago. Right? 
I also remember like my mom talking to me about how like when she was a kid she was like watching Tom and Jerry and there was like you know like the like racist caricature of like oh like an Indian and she said that she just remembered feeling so embarrassed like to be native and that just like really messed me up because like that definitely like perpetuated for me like for a while I was like well I just like don't want to talk about this because like maybe it's too painful or yeah again like like she felt embarrassed like this was something that was violent against her and that and instead like she felt shame and like we got to get the shame out <laughs> yes 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 i think such a big part of you know reclaiming what feminism is for ourselves and our communities has so much to do with like transforming those assimilations I mean, really, I mean, you know, sometimes, like, I know we could be so much more powerful as communities when we unlearn and untangle a lot of those, you know, internalized, um, like, conditions and stereotypes of ourselves. And it's also, like, at the core sorry to interrupt but it's also at the core of like where these issues intersect right like the mascots are built on these sexist colonial white supremacist ideas of a gender binary between a brave and an s word i don't even want to say it you know and there's this like over sexualization involved in them and you see it you know you see it you saw it at the super bowl where like these white women are over sexualizing themselves with pink headdresses and little outfits like trying to represent themselves as an s-word you know And, and like that's their idea of indigeneity is like an inherently rapeable femme body and then on the other side of it, we have murdered and missing indigenous relatives, right? You know, and so it's just, you know, and they're reproducing these like ideas of like, you know, violence with the tomahawk chop as if it's some type of, you know, blame the victim. Like, again, like they dehistoricize the issue, like claiming that we're the ones who invented scalping. Actually, the British invented it to, to colonize the Irish hundreds of years before they even came to our lands, you know, and then they brought it with them, you know, and they kept doing it, you know. And so that comes from them, you know, but they they put those violent stereotypes on us and then it, that reproduces like the actual material violence that people are going through now. So, you know, just to connect, like, it's not just about representation, you know, it's not just, we're not just saying like, we don't like this mascot because, you know, it, it relates to this long ago history or it relates to, you know, a stereotype, but it relates to the violence right now that they're perpetuating against our people. And what what surprise do we have from this coming from the NFL itself? Like, if we want to get into that and how the NFL, like, preys on Black communities in order to, like, 
make young black men feel like they have like a way out of poverty or like a way to not go to prison. Oh, just like destroy your body for sports for the spec for like a mostly white spectacle. It's like the violence doesn't even end with the mascots. It's ingrained in the very thing. And again, it's like all this on stolen land. Mm. Totally. So we don't we don't even want to abolish the mascot. We want to abolish the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. They, and, they wouldn't like, survive in a Toka game anyway. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, like speaking of like the players themselves, like I think it's so weird to me. And actually, um, my boyfriend pointed this out to me that like how they're so like homophobic. Like they're so homophobic, transphobic, you know, very cis, very het, very straight boys high schoolers that never grew up really who like do what I would like consider pretty like gay things. Like I was watched, like he had put on um, like the highlights from the show and I was like watching like the way that they like congratulated each other, like the way they like ramped each other up, the way they like, <laughs> All the just like all the, yeah. oh yeah the bus, all the smacks like the smacking i was like <laughs> there's no way like how is this and not to mention oh my gosh yeah not to mention too sorry um like on the field in, in one of the goalposts or whatever the fuck they're called i don't know anything about football um like the chiefs had literally written on the field and racism it's on their helmets too. It's on their helmets too. Yes, on oh, every single helmet God. it says "end racism." Meanwhile, well, end your freaking mascot. Like, what the heck? <laughs> oh, okay. So I guess we're just gonna forget. <laughs> we'll just no. forget about how Colin Kaepernick was blacklisted. Right. Yeah, I guess we'll just forget about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But end racism, though, guys. Mm -hmm. We at the NFL support ending racism and ending traumatic brain injuries. <laughs> and yet <laughs> here we are yeah. well I honestly can't thank you two enough for you know being part of this conversation today uh, I hope these conversations continue and if there's any um, you know last words of encouragement that we might be able to you know, share with listeners and people who are just out there in the struggle, you know, experiencing all of these things going on, whether directly or vicariously, it's a lot to fucking handle. It is. It's a lot to talk about. It is. Yeah. It is. Make sure I would just you try have to some say, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Don't go through it alone. Don't go through it alone. Because no. we can't get through this without each other. That is for sure. That is for sure. Yes. Yeah, you need friends. You need support. You need medicines with you. You know, it's time to to light your smudge and you know do a little self care. 
and also, you know, to celebrate each other, like to, you know, wanted to give a shout out to the, to the awesome native relative who reclaimed a headdress at the uh, Super Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty badass. You know, to all the folks who are still protecting the forest, still going out there, still caring for each other, caring for their community, um, to all the the Muscogee and Cherokee relatives who are going out there to do stop again, um, to sell you know, to practice their ways in that, in their own, their homelands, um, and to all the community that's coming out to say no. You know, we give a lot of love and medicine to all the survivors out there. Um, you know, this is a heavy show. So just, you know, we're lighting, lighting our, our sage for you. Yes, and you know, please don't forget to like carve out time and every day for yourself. Um, don't forget to write. Don't forget to make art, sing, dance, connect with people. Um, you know, I think a huge like um, cornerstone of like a radical feminism is that element of taking care. Mm-hmm. And we we can really like thank our you know like black ancestral kin and like our own ancestral um, you know relatives for showing us those ways too. Um, and I say all of that because I feel like a lot of activism mm-hmm. is just like it reproduces patriarchy so much and like the like more it's more of a doing something than like a living something and we have to live like in balance of what we are like here to do and also in nurturing like ourselves and and our communities mm-hmm. too um so practice emotional intelligence like google it google what it is <laughs> start you know like identifying part of it starts feelings. with us yeah. yeah. Like if we can't communicate on an individual basis, how are we going to communicate like as this bigger structure? It it does definitely start within and part of like indigenous abolition is also recognizing that health isn't just physical. Mm-hmm. That like there's def- there's many different there's different aspects to the health and like I would just say to people out there to also like make sure that your spiritual health is like being taken care of because mm-hmm. at like my lowest points, like having like my ancestors and like my prayer there for me has been completely transformative in how I've been able to move forward. Like mm-hmm. just not even like in my own individual personal life, but also like overall like it really gives me that inner strength like it's not just about like oh like make sure you're getting enough sleep but also you know taking care of like the inside and taking care of the spirit as well is really important mm-hmm. yes, yeah. yes 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 we yes, need to heal yes absolutely and it just so happens today that it's valentine's day and we're force-fed this idea that you know, love is something that can be bought. Um, happiness <laughs> is something that can be bought. Um, but really, like, you know, going back to what 
everyone has shared here today that really starts with building an intelligence within yourself and with, uh, with spirit, with land, with the sky, with non-human relatives, plants, animals, each other, etc. Mm-hmm. And yeah, with that, um, again, thank you both. Uh, I hope we can have more conversations. I really enjoyed um, learning from you too and being in relation and community with you. Sam, thank you so much. So much, Ki. Thank you so much. All right. Well, until next time. All right. You can find this broadcast on any of the usual podcast platforms or at indigenousaction.org backslash podcast. Email us pics of burning cop cars, burning churches, burning forts, or any questions or topics you'd like to hear us go claws out on at iainfo at protonmail.com. 